Well, here we are. We got to the third chapter, finally. There are some truths that we learned in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians that we need to be aware of, of course, because they're going to help us as we get into chapter 3. Paul was not afraid to state his feelings for the Christians who were living in Thessalonica. In fact, it was important to Paul that they knew how he felt, or perhaps it would be just as well to say to remember how he felt about them. Because in truth, those who were there when he was there knew how he felt about them. It was seen in his conduct and his actions toward them. And, and Paul used in chapter 2 illustrations both of a mother and a father showing great care for their children. Um, he had been gentle with them like a nursing mother. He had exhorted and comforted and even charged them as would be expected of a good father. And, and surely that ought to mean something to them because Paul had shown them that he cared. He wanted really for them to understand how much he desired to see them again. And, and we can't be sure of everything that had been or was being said, but it may be possible that some were suggesting that Paul really didn't care that much. That's why he hadn't come back. That it wasn't a matter that he couldn't, but he wouldn't. And... He wanted them to know that wasn't the case. In fact, he tells him in chapter 2, verse 18, that the truth was that Satan had hindered them from coming back. And we don't understand all that's involved in that, how he hindered Paul, but, but Paul knew and attributed the blocking of coming back to Satan. And so how else now can he prove his genuine concern for them? We're going to see in chapter 3 that he expands on this. He, he will not let it go because he really wants them to understand. What, what I want to do with this chapter, and you have an outline and, and you'll see some similarities here, but I want to divide these 13 verses into four parts. And each of these parts will be a statement that we could imagine, if you will, Paul making it. Not really an imaginary statement, but we could imagine him saying this. And the first of those statements is, I sent Timothy to you. Now, all these are related to Paul's wanting them to understand how much he cared for them. I sent Timothy to you. And incidentally, there are going to be a couple of occasions here, and I'm, I'm going to say I most of the time, because I think Paul is the one who's expressing this, but really it's we in most cases. There's one, one situation we're going to notice in the chapter. It's we because the others felt the same way, but Paul is the principal one here that we're focusing on. Look at verses 1 through 5. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it be it good to be left alone in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, 
and our fellow labor in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. That no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. This idea of not getting back to Thessalonica weighed heavily on Paul's mind. This, this separation from them, this uncertainty about their spiritual condition, and he dispatched Timothy to them. Now as an apostle, Paul had the authority to do that. I'm convinced of that. He could send Timothy on this mission. But we also have to believe that Timothy was willing to do it. That this wasn't any forced labor that Timothy hated doing, but he did it. I don't know if you've ever really thought about this or paid attention to it. I have to admit that I didn't for a long time. I want you to look back at Acts 17, because remember this is where we started uh, in our very first lesson as we talked about the background of, of the church in Thessalonica and how uh, it, it began. But if you look at chapter 17, we're not going to go back through all those earlier details, but look at verse 14 and 15. You remember that Paul had been at Berea, and just like had happened uh, earlier, the Jews stirred up trouble and the Berean brethren... Uh, wanted him to leave for his own benefit, of course. So verse 14 says, Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. Now note that. Paul goes away, they stay, and that's Timothy. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens and received a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed. They departed. Uh, re receiving a command, they departed. Now look over at chapter 18, verse 5. When Silas and Timothy came or had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Now, they stay, they come to Paul, Paul sends them back, or sends Timothy back, and then Timothy returns and in chapter 18, where does he come back to? In chapter 18. Not Athens. Corinth. So he, he had come to Athens, gone back to Thessalonica, and now he's come to Corinth. Well, look, if you look on a map and, and you check out Thessalonica and Athens and Corinth, here's what you're going to find. From Thessalonica to Athens by land route, is about 312 miles. Uh, nautical miles, it might be a little different, shorter, of course, but land route, 312 miles. From Thessalonica to Cor Corinth is 350 miles. Now listen, folks, Timothy didn't get on a plane. 
and then get on a high-speed train. That's a lot of travel. That, that's really, I, I don't think I ever understood or thought about how much Timothy had to do to, to, to go back to Thessalonica and come back again. It's a lot of travel. But he did it. And, and the reason Paul would send Timothy is he had so much confidence in him. Look at Philippians chapter 2. This is just one place, and this is all we need to note. It's Philippians 2 and verse 19. Philippians 2 verse 19. But I trust in the Lord, he talks about this to the Philippians, to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. Notice, I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. Look at verse 22. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Of course he had confidence in him. But, but now also remember this. When does Timothy join Paul initially? Acts 16, right? In Acts 16? Okay. What is Timothy when Paul gets him to go with him? An old man? No, in fact, even when he writes to him toward the end of Paul's life, after he had been with Timothy for some time, he says, let no man, what, despise your youth. And so Timothy is a young man, but a young man of talent, a young man of devotion to God, a young man who could be trusted, who cared truly for the state of those he worked with, and Paul said, I sent him to you. That, that ought to show something. And incidentally, it, rather interesting because I'm, I'm not a linguist, I don't know a lot of things about a lot of things, but in verse 1, the word alone is plural. When we think of alone, we think, you know, singular. But we were left alone. And so, Paul is saying, and, and that's a strong word, it's a word that sort of connotes the idea of being bereft of someone, almost like someone been taken away from you. And, and he said, look, I sent Timothy to you because I was so concerned and we were willing to be left by ourselves. Some, someone has observed this. If Paul had any place that he wouldn't want to be alone it might have been Athens, right? Because there, wasn't, there weren't many places further away from God than Athens was. I'm not talking just about the things like in Corinth, the immorality and so on, but these people were so far from God, they didn't know who God was. And so Paul said, I've sent him to you. In verse 5, he adds, when I could, in, I could no longer endure it, and incidentally, there's the situation where he uses the emphatic first person, I. I couldn't endure it anymore. I couldn't stand it. And Paul was not one of those people who would be willing to say, well, no news is good news. No, no. Paul said, I want Timothy to go because I want him to see what's there. Incidentally, keep in mind, Paul didn't have any miraculous insight. <laughs> He was a human being, just like we're human beings, and he, he had those feelings of concern 
And, and he said, I was afraid. I had some concern and fear. Notice verse 5. Lest by any means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. Paul knew how devilish the devil really is. We're not ignorant of his devices, he would say. He's got trickery. He, he might lead you astray. And I wanted to be sure that wasn't the case. Now, what was Paul expecting Timothy to do? Well, in verse 2 he said, he came to establish them. The, the word means literally to make stable or to strengthen. They were young Christians, immature in the faith, and Paul said, I wanted Timothy to come back because he could help you get strong. And to encourage them, verse 2, exhort has the meaning of to comfort. He could comfort you by exhorting you in the truth. And, and from being among them and with them, then Timothy would be able to see how well their faith was really holding up. I want you to keep in mind, this is first-hand observation. And that's what Paul wanted. He didn't want to just hear about them. He wanted somebody to be there that he trusted and give a first-hand observation of how their faith really was. Now, Paul recognized the effect that difficulties can have on, on people. You know, it's really easy to do well when there's no adversity. When there's no trouble, no problem. But when trouble comes, some people stumble and falter. And, and Paul is not accusing them. He's not saying, I, I doubted you. But he is saying, I, I needed to know how well you're doing. Look at that statement in verse 3, and let's ask ourselves, what is the meaning? You yourselves know that we are appointed to this, or for this. Well, look at John 15 for just a moment. The words of Jesus, John 15, and verse 9. 19, excuse me, verse 19. If you were of the world, Jesus would tell his disciples, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And then 2 Timothy, the third chapter and the twelfth verse. This is one of the most troublesome verses for me. Because Paul says in, in, in 2 Timothy 2, 3 and verse 12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Do you live godly? You're going to suffer persecution. And say you might, possible that you could, you will. I guess the reason that bothers me is sometimes if our life is so easy and we have no trouble with people in our faith, are we really living that godly? Can they see a distinction in us? He amplifies this in verse 4 and says to them, this is not new information. 
For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened. And you know, I said. We told you, and, and the, the, incidentally, the, the sense of that is we kept telling you. We told you again and again. And so Paul never tried to hide from them the cost that was going to be paid to follow Jesus. Neither did Jesus. Jesus never tricked anybody into following him and saying, if you follow me, everything will be easy, there won't be any difficulty. He let his followers know you have to count the cost. And now we need to ask ourselves, should we not tell people that there is a cost to be paid to be a disciple of Jesus? Someone has use the expression easy Christianity. And we need to be careful of easy Christianity. Is there a purpose in God allowing Christians to suffer? Some really seem to have the idea that God should place some kind of shield over us. If we're God's people, nothing should happen to us. Look at Romans 5 again for just a moment, please. Romans 5 and verses 3 and 4. Romans 5, 3 and 4. And not only that, we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulations produce perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Again, Paul was concerned that, that they might have been carried away by temptation. And that's why he used that emphatic I. And, and what kind of temptation? We don't know. Now, how can Paul write of laboring in vain if a person cannot fall from grace? You see, Paul recognizes the possibility that if you are not faithful, then the labor that I put in is in vain because you're going to be lost. And the idea of the impossibility of apostasy is, as some say, a very comforting doctrine, but it's also a lot of baloney. The impossibility of apostasy is a human creation. There are too many warnings in the New Testament about being careful and remaining faithful and not giving in to Satan to ever believe that it's impossible to fall from grace. In fact, Paul says in Galatians 5 verse 4, you have fallen from grace. Talks about people who have. And so Paul wanted a first-hand report. And this is why he sent Timothy. And I, I just... I don't want to belabor this, but it's too bad that many churches have not picked up on that idea in regard to mission work. And, and one of the reasons why members of this church have made trips to places that we support financially is we need to see firsthand what's going on. I worked for a church in another place many years ago. And you know it was many years ago, right? 
They had supported a missionary in Italy for more than 20 years. More than 20 years. Nobody had ever gone to see him. His wife, they had brought him to America. They had brought him to America. I don't know how that told him about his work in Italy. But while I was living there, an elder and I were going to, I, I convinced him, let's go see this guy. Let's go see his work. Okay, okay. We found out that the minister's wife had cancer. And the elder said, we don't want to go over there if she's sick. And I said to him, brother, if there's any time we need to go, it's while she's sick to encourage him and to make sure that he's holding up okay. We didn't go. They never did go to see him. I just I don't know how you can support a work for years and years and years and never see what the work really is. But there are a lot of churches who do that. They don't mind sending money and not ever knowing what the work is really like where they send the money. Okay, that's first statement. Second statement. I got a good report from Timothy. That's verses 6 through 8. Let's look at it. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us, as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. Raymond Kelsey in his commentary calls this an exuberance of happiness. I like that. Now, Paul didn't always get good news. News from the household of Chloe was that the conditions in Corinth weren't really good, 1 Corinthians 1. But Timothy brought good news. Now, some of you using the uh, NIV and ESV, I'm sure, uh, in, in verse uh, 6, Instead of but now, I, I think your version says just now. And that's more literally correct. Just now. That's the force of the word. And, and, and the reason that's significant is that Paul seems to be saying, I just now found out and I am immediately writing you. I, I don't want to wait. I heard good news. I want to immediately tell you that I heard this good news. Why was it good news? Because of their faith and love? Faith in God? And I think, and just my opinion, love for God and for those workers. Dual love. But they remembered Paul in a good way. And they desired or longed to see him. That means yearning after him. And Paul said, that's just the way we feel about you. You long to see us, we long to see you, or you long for us. And this was the perfect cure for Paul. Where he had been concerned, now he is elated, he's been comforted, and it is by your faith. See, that was the most important part of the good news. The most important part of the good news was not well, you like us. 
Janice and I have a good friend that he measures relationships with people about how they feel about him. And, and he always says, they just love me. They just love me. That's not what Paul is really most concerned. I am thrilled by your faith as well as by your concern for us. And in verse 8, Paul felt revived. If you stand fast. It could be translated, since you stand fast. And probably should be. And so this news and the effect of it would lead Paul to add a third statement. And that is, I still want to see you. Verses 9 through 11. For what thanks can we render to God for you and for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. Verse 9 is, is really essentially a rhetorical question. How could we ever, in other words, and the answer to that is we could never. We could never thank God enough for the joy that you've given us. And here we see the heart of the great apostle. As he, as he prayed, and he said, I'm praying day and night, in the daytime, in the nighttime. I'm praying that somehow I might be able to see you again. That God would direct us to you. Now Paul talks about, we want to come because we want to help you for what's lacking in your faith. We don't really know what was, what was implied by that. What is lacking? Well, obviously young Christians could use more teaching, couldn't they? They certainly hadn't been taught everything they should have been taught in such a short period of time. Maybe they needed help in maturing in their faith. We do know that they needed or were going to need help in understanding things about the second coming. And that doesn't mean that Paul is disappointed in them. It means that he recognizes there's room for improvement. But Paul also understood something else here, and that is that he was absolutely dependent on the Father and the Son to get him back to them. That it wouldn't be just what he wanted. It would have to be God's will. But he wasn't going to give up on the idea of seeing them again. So there's one more statement, and that is I'm praying for you. Verses 12 and 13, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming by Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. He first mentioned in verse 10 this idea about praying night and day, praying exceedingly, abundantly, often, You know, Paul prayed often for others. I know his life was busy. I know he had a lot of people that he had been involved with, and somehow or another he found time to pray for a lot of people. He mentions in writing his letters, praying for all these people to whom he writes. And he petitions God now, may the Lord make you increase 
and abound. Those are very close words to each other. In love to one another, notice, and to all, just as we do to you. There's always room for improvement in love. We don't ever reach that point where we say, I love as much as I could love. No, you can love more. Because you not only love each other in a close relationship like ours here, but he says, toward all men. And this, of course, obviously is that most important Greek word for love, agape, the word that that really doesn't mean that you love because of the goodness of the person or because of the worth of the person, but because you seek their good. And Paul says, I want you, I'm praying for you that you might abound in love to one another and for all people. It's easy to love people that you know and have a close relationship. It's a lot harder to love people you don't know. And and sometimes that's confusing to some people because they say, how can I love somebody I've never seen? And I, I understand that if you only consider it as an emotion, but if you seek their highest good, you certainly can love them. And one of the ways that you do that, of course, is praying for them. They would simply be imitating what Paul and his co-workers felt for them. I want you to love others just as we love you. The result of this would be Notice, to be established, Paul says, so that he may establish your heart. That's the same word that he used back in verse 2, wasn't it? That's why he sent Timothy, to establish them. And he wanted their hearts to be blameless in holiness when the Lord came again. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. There's no doubt in Paul's mind about the second coming. He, He mentioned at the end of the first chapter, what is our hope, verse 19, or joy, or crown, rejoicing? It is not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming. Here in the second chapter, he's, come, he's going to talk about it again and again. Now, Paul didn't know when the Lord was coming, but he did know the importance of being ready for it to happen. You and I don't know when it happens, but we know we need to be ready for it to happen. Now that expression, with his saints, has been confusing to some people. And and there are two schools of thought, of course, in this, as you would expect. One would be that Jesus is going to bring all of the dead Christians with him. I don't think that's what's meant here. Um, If you look at Matthew 25 for a moment. Matthew 25 and verse 31. Jesus, of course, is the speaker here. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, what? With and all his holy angels. Holy angels with him. Look in in 2 Thessalonians, the same correspondence, only the second letter. Chapter 1 and verse 7. And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. 
we don't know everything we'd like to know about the second coming. We just know it's going to happen. We need to be ready for it. In chapter 4, he's going to give more details about it. But, but we do need to know this. This is our closing thought. Early Christians were taught to be in a constant state of readiness. I wonder if we've lost that. Sometimes we get so happy with what we've got right now, we don't really want the Lord to come back. We don't want, the, we don't want this to end. We like it the way it is. Early Christians, I think, felt different, and maybe it was because of the pressure that they were under in their faith. Maybe we have not been pressured enough to have that longing for the Lord's second coming. I have to ask myself, do I even think about it? Not only am I prepared for it, but do I even think about the Lord's return? Or is it something I just kind of push out of my mind? Because I've got stuff to do today. Or do we get up every day saying, if this is the day the Lord comes, hallelujah. I think early Christians believed that it would be a day of rejoicing. And it should be. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Appreciate you coming to our class. I think our young people will be coming back in just a minute and we'll have our devotional service.